Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Library Science Channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm joined by Jeanette Bastian, author of Archiving Cultures, Heritage, Community, and the Making of Records and Memory. Archiving Cultures was published by Rutledge in March 2023. Archiving Cultures defines and models the concept of cultural archives, focusing on how diverse communities express their and express and record their heritage and collective memory, and why and how these often intangible expressions are archival records. Analysis of oral traditions, memory texts, and performance art just demonstrate their relevance as records of their communities. Jeanette Bastian is a professor emerita at the School of Library and Information Science, Simmons University, and a former territorial librarian of the United States Virgin Islands. Welcome to New Books Network. Thank you, and good afternoon. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, I'm really pleased uh, for a chance to to chat with you about this book. But before we start talking about the book, could you share a little bit with listeners about your background, where you grew up and went to school, and what brought you to your work in and with archives? Oh, sure. Um, so I am originally English, born in England. My family emigrated to the United States when I was a teenager. And so I spent high school in the United States, actually in New Jersey. I got my undergraduate degree at New York University. And then my MLS at a very small library school in Pennsylvania that actually no longer exists because I I checked it (laughs) on the web. And um, and this was not necessary was not my particular choice, but it was just one of those logistical things that happened. And I really wanted to go to library school. That was what was available, and actually, it was fine. I got a good basic education. Um, and so, in my late twenties, I moved to St. Thomas and Virgin in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and. Um, went to work at the public library and worked there for about 26 years. In the middle of that, I decided to go to the University of the West Indies for a year and begin studying for an MPhil, which is a British British Commonwealth degree um, in Caribbean literature. So I did that. And... um, at the public library, I, I sort of started out as a reference librarian and eventually um, became the director of all the territorial libraries on the three islands, St. Thomas, St. Croix, and St. John. And um, at a certain point in the, um, actually in the late 1980s, right after I became the director, um, we were mandated to start government archives. There really was not a formal archives, although the public library in St. Thomas was kind of, you might say the informal, I hate to use the word dumping ground, but that's what it was, for all kinds of government records and things like that. But we didn't, it wasn't an official archives. And so we started an official archives and, um, at a certain point, several years later, I decided I needed to be a little more educated about administration and archives. And so I um, 
went to the University of Pittsburgh to get a doctorate degree. And while I was there, um, or even before I went, one of the issues in the Vir one of the big issues in the Virgin Islands that I have actually written about quite a lot is the fact that they, um, because it was a colony of Denmark for two hundred and fifty years, the um, they had no records. All of their historical records were taken to Denmark by Denmark to the Danish National Archives when um, St. Thomas was purchased by the United States in 1917. And this had always been a, a kind of a matter of real curiosity and non-understanding to me in, as I worked as a librarian in the public library because people were constantly coming in and wanting information, particularly genealogical information, that we didn't have and was just not accessible at all. I mean, unless you travel to Denmark. Um, we did have, and they still have, a very, very good Virgin Islands collection, but it did not include, of course, all of those records. It was mostly published stuff. Now, um, a couple of years ago, Denmark digitized most of their records, and so the, most of their Danish West Indies Virgin Islands records, and so they are now available. But at that time, in the 1980s, they weren't. And so that's what I wrote my dissertation about, or really um, to sort of try to understand, well, what happened? And why is that like this? And is it is it right? You know, is it correct? Did Who should have custody, basically, of these records? And along the way, I really discovered that that perhaps the oral culture was perhaps more more important in a, in some many ways that in other than the records in other words that people in the virgin islands having no access to written records were very dependent upon the or, their oral traditions for to understand their history and and so just just trying to figure out how virgin islanders thought about their history, really, I think, and in addition, the whole kind of, the whole, some of the consequences of colonialism really sort of set up the themes that I've followed throughout my um, writing career. Anyway, I went to the University of Pittsburgh, started studying for my doctorate, and um, really became very engaged in archives in a way, archival science in a way I hadn't really been before, and um, decided to go and teach at Simmons. <laughs> so that was, that's me. That, so that was 20, well, now about 20, 22 years ago, and um, that's my life story. Amazing. Thank you. Uh, and I feel like some of that feeds into my next question, but I'm sure you can elaborate more because um, as we turn to this book, Archiving Cultures, uh, could you share more about how you came to the project of writing this book and what some of your main goals were for it? So in many ways, so I have been, I've written several books and my first book about this was about this whole records situation and colonialism in the Danish West Indies. It's called 
owning memory, how, how a Caribbean community lost its archives and found its history. And basically, that's what the book is about. And, and after that, I, I've continued to write primarily about, um, about the idea that the written records are not the whole story, that there is, that there are other records out there. And, and so in many ways, this book is kind of a summary of all these things I've been thinking about and also wanting to say um, for a long time. So um, I don't think this has to do necessarily with just the Caribbean at all. Um, I think that all, all communities have an oral culture that isn't necessarily as recognized as the written culture. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So, 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 my goal really, and that I think we touched upon this earlier. When we were, so, there's a, many things have been written, particularly lately, about expanding the archives or and thinking about other ways of, um, well, about sort of breaking out of the sort of. Western Western tradition that we've been kind of, that the archival profession has been kind of boxed in, but and so a lot of theoretical things have been written, but but no, but very few really practical ideas, and so I wanted to really marry the theoretical with the practical and offer ways in which, you know we archivists can break out of that box that basically we put ourselves into. Yeah. 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 You're right that it is a, a box we built for ourselves, but um, yeah. And uh, you've, you've made all these references to like the, the importance and the value of, of oral tradition. And um, in the introduction, you point to this challenge of weaving together tangible and cultural knowledge written in performative records um why does why does it matter why do we need to rise to this challenge and i guess what are the issues at stake well essentially archivists feel that what their mission is is to document society and the question is how can you document society if you only if you only look at or or value or preserve, maybe value is the right word, a particular segment of the expressions of society. So not all of society, wherever that is, is necessarily about in text. There's a lot of other important cultural markers, cultural expressions, um, cultural records that may be performative, they may be oral, and it seems to me that arch that archivists have a way of putting things into kind of little silos. So you know, all record oral history goes in one section, or oral traditions go in one area, and photographs go in another area, and um, the records of particular ethnic groups go in different areas, but they're not, archivists are not, have not been very good at weaving together all, all of the documentation. 
And so what I am trying to do is, I suppose, is break through that and try to build a case for why that weaving together has to happen if you really are serious about documenting all of society. Definitely, because otherwise we miss we miss so much, yeah. Um, and so then in the first and second chapters, you re-examine ideas of cultural heritage, archival heritage, intangible heritage, and of records and record keeping. Uh, and I really liked the way in these chapters you um, asked us to reconsider a lot of definitions that are maybe the definitions we're taught in library school. <laughs> Um, and so how are you suggesting that we can we reconceptualize archives, heritage, and records? And, and what can that help us do? Well, I, it, so in that first chapter, which is a lot about UNESCO definition, it's, it's about definitions of heritage and what I see as archival heritage. Um, in the definitions of cultural heritage, which has been kind of led by UNESCO, and the UNESCO definitions in a in a global sense, I'm really trying to build a case for considering these intangible records. So I'm trying to build a case by showing how these definitions of cultural heritage that really started to be generated after World War II, and I think it was they were generated because so many things were destroyed. So many cultural sites were destroyed. And um, and I think the influence of the Monuments Men and so forth and people trying to save cultural heritage may have kind of, and I'm, I'm just guessing on this, but may have sort of spurred this recognition that, that in order to sort of preserve something, you first have to define it. And then it becomes kind of a marker that yes, we consider this cultural heritage, so leave it alone. And um, it started out, of course, with cultural heritage being defined in a, in a very European in context. And very slowly, throughout the last part of the 20th century, and, and with enough, um, I guess, contestation by UN UNESCO members and U the United Nations, um, UNESCO finally reached a reached the point where they were willing to define intangible cultural intangible intangibles as cultural heritage as well. So, if archives has always considered itself a, a part of cultural heritage, and therefore they have to go, they have to take that path as well if they really want to be truly part of cultural heritage. So in, in part of a chapter one, I'm sort of trying to build that case about the sort of parallels between cultural heritage and archives, both as part of cultural heritage. And then the second part, I talk about what I consider to be archival heritage. What I consider to be archival heritage are basically two things. One is the theory the basic theory, like provenance, for example, well, provenance as the basic theory. And these are sort of theoretical ideas that are not really tied to any particular records, but are just a 
a concept, a matrix in which archivists work. And of course, the collections themselves, which which become the heritage. So, so that part, and then the second chapter uh, um, about defining records. And, you know, in some ways it's kind of a, I wouldn't say it's exactly like a broken record because everyone's trying to define the record. It's been going on for a long time. Let's define the record for a change. But, um, I, but I'm trying to, I think, define the record in such a way that it is not tied to text. That the record, that what a record is, is defined by, as Terry Cook says, and I quote quite a lot of, by the need of people to record, which is, you know, a human impulse that is not necessarily tied to a particular piece of paper or a particular website, but um, but is tied to that to that human need, which can be expressed in many ways. So as I said, so these first two chapters are trying to build the, a case that then leads into a demonstration of how this plays out, basically, in different um, aspects of intangible heritage. So that's yeah. what we do. No, I mean, I think that was a, it was a really like solid foundation um, to start with rethinking some of those ideas. Um, and then you moved in the third and fourth chapters to looking at, I guess, like these other, these other types of records, oral tradition and performance. Um, so what happens when we acknowledge these, um, as records and, and bring these ways of knowing and being into the archive and, um, what are some of the tangible impacts of legitimizing them as historic texts? Um, yeah. Well, I think that, you know, once you start to think beyond the texts, the text, and you start to expand your ways of knowing. And I must point out that there are many cultures, excuse me, who have even not not just thought beyond the text, but in a sense lived beyond the text and have lived beyond the text and whose whose central philosophies, whose central values may not have anything to do with text. So, and so you have to kind of say, well, is this to some extent a particular Western mindset that we are in, and I and I make the point that you know that this Western mindset isn't just a European mindset; that in a sense, it was also propagated to colonialism. And it's kind of you know it's easy to forget that at one at several points during quite a few centuries, maybe you know the sixteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth century, or maybe seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth. Let's say over a span of three or four hundred years, a large part of the world was colonized, and it was colonized primarily by European countries. And these countries brought their record-keeping practices with them. These were not necessarily the record-keeping practices that the countries at the time held. So this we can call it whatever influence, maybe Western, but if you want, 
pervaded, pervaded um, the world globally. And, and so it's not surprising that it's so difficult to move out of it, you know, and, 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 it's, and even those countries who were colonized find huge difficulties in breaking out of that as well. So it's not just, you know, our Western countries issue. It's, it's, it's actually a huge issue. Um, and, and as, you know, and so the, and so as, you know, texts moved up, um, oral cultures in a sense were, were denigrated, moved down. And so we're, so we need to kind of redress the balance or at least recognize that there is an imbalance here and that perhaps there are many countries and cultures where that have different ways of recording or preserving their information that are just as valid. And of course, I'm not the only person who's written about this. A lot of other people have too. Although I will say mostly outside the archives profession. So, um, so I'm forgetting your, what, what your questions were. <laughs> I'm, I don't mean to get carried away about this. No, of course. Um, I guess also maybe some of the tangible impacts, perhaps ones you've seen of recognizing other types of records as records, um, oral and performative records. Yeah. So, so, it, it, so uh, I'd use an interesting example of tangibility, you might say. I'll use the Caribbean because that, that's where I'm most comfortable. Um, during the pandemic, um, there were, you know, we all remember, so not too long ago, unfortunately, and I guess still with us in a way, that there were many, not rules and regulations, but suggestions for how you were to behave, you were to wear masks, and remember you were washing your hands all the time, and you weren't, you know, Everyone remembers those. In the Caribbean, which is in many ways very much an oral culture, the word, and you know, and so all these instructions were written down and so forth, things were sent around. In the Caribbean, which is, as I said, in very much in many ways an, an oral, orally centered culture, Calypsonians wrote songs that included all the instructions he was supposed to do, making this therefore something of the people. It wasn't that people couldn't read, but it's just that what people were responding to was part of what they their oral culture. Their oral their oral their culture received information in a different kind of way. And so actually different islands had maybe really great, yeah, really creative. I mean, the you know, government sponsored calypsos of the kinds and calypsonians themselves, um, in as a way of just informing a lot of people who might not read the bulletin, but would be listening to the radio and would be hearing the calypso. And and I think that's just an example of how information I mean, just an obvious and of how actually current information is um, is communicated. And I, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of other examples, but this is just a good contemporary one that um, 
that I think was very, um, yeah, very, very useful. Absolutely. Yeah. It makes me think about how if, if someone is assembling a regional archive and doesn't include non-textual records, they've missed out on that whole part of what was happening regionally. But if someone is doing research on, um, you know, public health records, public health campaigns from the pandemic across spaces and doesn't think to look for anything that's non-textual, they'll also miss that. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yes. They'll also miss how people got the message. How yeah. was it, and what was, and what was the, and what were the important things in to be communicated as well, mm -hmm. in and perhaps differently in different regions too. So I mean, you know, you could kind of go on and on, but you're quite right. Yes, yeah, that's that's really um, a, a fantastic example. Thank you. Um, and you also look at memory and community uh, in the fifth chapter of the book. So I'm curious um, how memory fits into the archive, if you could talk more about the role of memory and, and how we incorporate it as um, as part of the archive. And you you wrote here a lot about community archives as well and how they shape what's remembered and forgotten and uh, what records make their way to institutional archives. So I would love if you could expand on, on some of that. So actually throughout my writing career, I've written quite a bit about memory and also community archives. So this was kind of a, a summary more than anything else. But but memory has always been a huge component of why people keep records. I mean, you know, accountability, evidence, and memory. Um, and if you think about national, national archives or your own institution, memory is a huge reason for keeping the records. But very often it's been seen more as kind of a touchstone, as a trigger to memory. I mean, records have seen as a trigger. But I, I've, I've kind of started, I really feel that, that memory is embodied in things. That it's not memory and the record are not separate. They, they come together. They are the same thing. And um, and I think particularly um, digital memory is, I think they're coming closer and closer. <laughs> and I think, for example, in, in digital memory, I mean, you know, think, you know, you have your smartphone, you create an instant memory. And um, it's not a trigger, it's, it's just together. And so, I'm not sure that archivists are thinking about memory and records as often being the same thing as, as this embodiment, although perhaps more and more with, um, you know, in the digital arena, it, it will become clearer and clearer that perhaps they are the same thing very often, you know. Um, and, and, and I, so this is what I was kind of working towards. So, so really, and, and in a sense, memory itself is, is an intangible, um, huh. and which we make tangible through objects, through, through records, through all kinds of things. Somehow 
bringing that together. I think the community archive, that the community archives movement has actually been been really effective in in that in that memory arena. Because what they I mean, they're trying to do a lot of things, but one of the things they're trying to do is really not only to preserve, but to really surface, really bring forward the memories and not only the old memories, but the current memories of many different ethnic, many different groups, many different, often marginalized groups, um, communities, groups of people that may never, may not appear in the official archives. And so to some extent, they are trying to, I wouldn't say to jot, they are trying to put these groups within the societal memory. They're bringing these, they're bringing this memory into the place where it should be, which is with all of us. So I, so that's kind of what I think that where that also, you know, all kinds of fits in. Yeah, there's like a, a kind of legitimizing work there as well, perhaps. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Right. The community archives are, by preserving and saving and highlighting um, the experiences and therefore the memories of many different groups, they, yes, you're quite right, they are um, bringing them. Well, legitimizing doesn't, I'm not sure, but um, validating. How about validating? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I would validate. Yeah. Um, and so then in your final chapter, you suggest that archives can bring together a lot of the binaries that you've explored in the book of intangible and tangible, fluid and static, oral and scribal, performative and textual. Um, and you propose this idea of archival equity, expanding the archival mindset to recognize many formats of records in order to create an archive that's a true mirror of humankind. And so I was wondering if you could speak to some of the things that you think archives and archivists need to do, both institutionally and personally, which might be very different things, um, in order to make this a reality and in order to make these mindset shifts happen. Yes. Um, So I think actually, you know, changing mindsets is a really, really hard thing to do. And it doesn't happen overnight. It, you know, happens over a long period of time, usually by chipping away and finally getting there. Um, I, in the, um, I guess it's in my last chapter, I give a, a number of examples of how this unity can, can be achieved. So, you know, in this case, I mean, technology is just totally our friend and, um, the, and technology just offer it. I mean, how it, as it is right now, it, it offers huge, um, possibilities for bringing together all kinds of different formats. And in the future, it will probably go even further things that we can't imagine. But one of the great things I think about technology, and I, and perhaps you know, you probably know more about this than I do, that it's kind of like if you think it, you could do it. 
<laughs> and um, which wasn't always, you know, which isn't always the case in yeah. you know, an analog world. But in the digital world, um, you know, I think, you know, I always feel, for example, there's some sort of problem, some digital thing I can't figure out. But I feel if I've thought about it, it must be possible to do it. And, um, and I see you're smiling, so I hope that you agree with that. Oh, absolutely. I spent I spent most of yesterday trying to figure out how to do something. And I thought, if I can imagine that this is possible, there's probably a YouTube video explaining how to make the software do this. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And so I think that, you know, so it's not just a mindset, but I think it's also an imagine. It's also being imaginative and being creative. It, I think it's obviously impossible for to ever really capture something that's intangible. And so I think you have to accept that right from the beginning because that's why in a sense why it's intangible because you can because you can't capture it. And then so um so it's sort of a paradox thing. So you can, you know, you can never be totally capture you can never totally describe or even set say a performance, you can, you know, capture half an hour of it, but each performance of the same thing will be slightly different. And it's not likely that you can capture each of those. So you have to sort of say, okay, I'm going to do the best I can. And, um, and I think I've offered a number of suggestions for understanding, like visual literacy mm-hmm. had this whole idea of performers who mark, marking, they who, in, that dancers who, for example, encode movements within themselves. Um, and so there are techniques that you could explore, always recognizing that you are going to hit a wall. There is a wall there. And that's, and that's fine because, because I think there are also ways to sort of sneak over, slightly sneak over that wall by possibly keeping what you're doing very fluid. Um, so back to what archivists should do. I, I, so I think thinking or sort of modifying your mindset and being very willing to be creative and imaginative. If you know, if you want to do something, you can figure out how to do it. But the first thing is you have to want to do it. And um, I've always felt that the archive profession is, it's sort of, archivists are very liberal thinkers, but I think they're very conservative practitioners. And it's understandable why an archivist would be a conservative practitioner, because what you keep, or what you, particularly what you don't keep, could have huge implications. So what you do can have huge consequences. And those consequences are quite scary. And, um, and you know, and of course, mis- I wouldn't say mistakes have been made, but certainly things have been discarded and who can, re- and we can't really predict what, you know, what the trend or what people will be interested in in the future. So puts archivists are in a really difficult position And and so it's very understandable that they're very cautious and very careful. So that's kind of on one side. But on the other side, I don't think there's a risk 
in documenting as much as you can. I don't think there's a risk in admitting these intangibles. One of my, I guess one of my goals, which I didn't mention, and I, and I'm not, and I hope it comes through in the book. There have been quite a bit of um, writing among, and talk among archivists, I would say in the past, maybe in the past decade of, you know, the archives doesn't work and the archives is colonial and the archives is this, that, and the other, and we have to change everything. But my point is, I don't think we have to change everything. I think that the principle, the archival principles are sound. We just have to expand what we fit in to that framework. The framework is fine. If you think of the framework as provenance, original order, custody, just those very general things. And so it's really what goes into that, what we consider within that framework that, that, that really has to change. And then as far as how that becomes manifest to other people, you know, how you process it and what you, and so forth. I, I think that um, digital technology has the potential of really resolving that, or at least allowing people to see that, hey, you know, this documentary record is huge and it includes songs, it includes dances, it includes parades, it includes all kinds of formats. And and so um so as I said, I think that and that's why I end the chapter talking about mindsets, because I think that's because that's where it has to start. I mean I could talk forever, but not necessarily convince you. <laughs> you have to think it through for yourself. Yeah. Well, and I appreciate that you are so hopeful that like the the foundational framework we have can be more expansive and more inclusive if we just, you know, use our imaginations a little more um, and I guess demand more of what what we think is possible. Yes. And but it's also recognizing, I mean, the you know, the part I mean, the important part of the mindset is really recognizing that something that's not textual has equal value to something that's textual. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, and that each culture determines how it's going to communicate, how it's going to record, and how it's going to preserve. And archivists really need to respect that and to sort of follow it and to not, and to sort of get out of this, you know, to get out of this box that, as I said before, they got themselves into. And, but it hasn't always been that way. You know, I mean, sometimes when you, well, I mean, I taught for all these years, but um, you, you, you end up giving the impression that, you know, before Jenkinson and Schellenberg, there was nothing. But of course, <laughs> for thousands of years, people have been recording and expressing themselves. And there's a real tendency to forget that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I've taken a fair bit of your time. Uh, but before we wrap up, I would love if you could share a little bit about what you're working on next. If you have any new projects that have come out of this book or entirely different things you're working on. 
So I think I, I, I didn't mention in my little bio. So I'm an honorary fellow at the University of the West Indies, and they have a library science department. And what I do is I supervise, they started a doctoral program. And so I've been supervising their doctoral students. So we, I currently have four, but more are being, I mean, so this is, this were the first, these are the first four and the program is being built. They're all working on two live in Trinidad and two live in Jamaica. And of course, you know, in the past few years, we've only been able to, um, to, to talk over Zoom, although I'm hoping to in person go to their graduations. But, um, you know, so that, that takes up, you know, so just kind of, super, well, supervising them, keeping on track takes a bit of time. I'm very involved with my Jamaican colleagues that I've been working with on various Carib books about Caribbean archives. But but one of the things that the, the book made me, writing the book made me really think about was provenance, which I think is, which is so important and so central. And, and although we don't realize it has really changed over the years as, I mean, it really knew concepts emerging all the time of what exactly it is and what exactly entails and how all of these relationships, these provenance relationships work. So I'm, so I'm hoping to work with two colleagues to possibly um, produce, I think, a special issue of archival, maybe of archival science. I haven't put out a call. We haven't put out a call for articles yet. But we will, and so because I I think it would be very useful to to see a whole lot of how people are thinking about provenance all in the same place, and um, and I thought maybe a book, but I think actually people read articles more, so um, so that's kind of what I'm thinking about. That sounds like a lot to keep you busy. Yes. Well, you know, I mean, that's what, I mean, the thing is in retirement, I, I you know, when I, re I felt I, I feel I retired from teaching, but I didn't retire from thinking. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's good. That's good. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you've made more time for thinking, right? Yes, exactly. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Once again, my guest today is Jeanette Bastian, author of Archiving Cultures, Heritage, Community, and the Making of Records and Memory, published by Rutledge. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you are listening to the Library Science Channel of the New Books Network. <laughs>